Chapter 13 of Regiment of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. Regiment of Women by Clemence Dane. Chapter 13. With the opening of the spring term began the final and most arduous preparations for the Easter examinations. The school had been endowed, some years before, under the will of a former pupil, with a scholarship, a valuable one, ensuring not only the freedom of the school, but substantial help in the subsequent college career that the winning of it entailed. The rules were strict. The papers were set and corrected by persons chosen by the trustees of the bequest. The scholarship was open to the school, but no girl over seventeen might enter, and though an unsuccessful candidate might compete a second time, she must gain a percentage of marks in the first attempt. Total failure debarred her from making a second. This last rule limited, in effect, the entries to members of the sixth and fifths, for the scholarship was too valuable for a chance of it to be risked through insufficient training. The standard, too, was high, and the rules so strictly enforced that withheld the grant if it were not attained that Miss Marsham was accustomed to make special arrangements for those competing. They were called the scholarship class, and had certain privileges and a great amount of extra work. To most of them, the particular privilege that compensated for six months' drudgery was the fact that they were almost entirely under Miss Hartle's supervision. She considered their training her special task, and spared neither time nor pains. She loved the business. She understood the art of rousing their excitement, pitting ambition against ambition. She worked them like slaves, weeding out remorselessly the useless members. Theoretically, all had the right to enter, but none remained against Miss Hartle's wishes. In spite of the work, the members of the scholarship class had an envied position in the school. Clara saw to that. Without attackable bias, she differentiated subtly between them and the majority. Each of the group was given to understand without words, impalpably, yet very definitely, that if Miss Hartle, the inexorable, could have a preference, one had but to look in the glass to find it, and that to outstrip the rest of the class, to be listed and easy first, would be the most exquisite justification that preference could have. And as the type of girl who succumbed the most surely to Clare's witchcraft was also usually of the type whom intellectual work was in itself attractive, it was not surprising if her favorite class were a hotbed of emulation and enthusiasm, enthusiasm that was justified of its origin, for not even Henrietta Vigorous denied that Clara contributed her full share to the earning of the scholarship. Miss Marsham, towards the end of spring, was wont to declare, with her usual kindly concern, that she was thankful that the examination was not an annual affair. Their good Miss Hartle was too anxious, too conscientious, Miss Marsham must really forbid her to make herself ill, and, indeed, when the class was a large one, Clare was as reckless of her own strength as of that of her pupils, and suffered more from its expenditure. Where they were responsible each for herself, Clare toiled early and late for them all. She fed them, moreover, from her own resources of energy, was entirely willing to devitalize herself on their behalf. The strain once over, she appeared slack, gaunt, debilitated. She had, however, 
her own methods of recuperation. Her ends gained, she could take back what she had given, take back more than ever she had given. Moreover, the supply of child life never slackened. Old scholars might go, but ever the new ones came. Was it not Claire who gave the school its latter-day reputation? By the end of the summer term, Claire would be once more in excellent condition. When the promotion of Louise to the upper school had first been mooted, Miss Harple had not forgotten that the scholarship examination was once more drawing nearer. She saw no reason why Louise should not compete. That Louise, the Wildham Dullard of the third, the youngest girl in the upper school, should snatch the prize from the expectance of the sixth and fifths, would be an effective retort on Clare's critics, would redound very pleasantly to Clare's credit. If she let the opportunity pass, Louise must wait two years. At thirteen, it would be a triumph for Louise and Clare. At fifteen, there would be nothing notable in her success, and the baby herself would be delighted. Clare was already sufficiently taken with Louise to enjoy the anticipation of her delight. She was quite aware that it would entail special efforts on her own part, as well as on the child's, and that she had a large class already on her hands, and in need of coaching. But there was always Alwyn. Alwyn was so reliable. She could safely leave Louise's routine work in Alwyn's hands. It remained to consult Louise and, incidentally, the parent Denny's. Louise was awestruck, overwhelmed by the honor of being allowed to compete, absurdly and touchingly delighted. No doubt as to Louise's sentiments, no doubt as to the sincerity of her efforts, no doubt, until the spring term began, of the certainty of her success. The spring term opened with Claire in Miss Marsham's carved seat at morning prayers. The school had grown accustomed to its headmistress's occasional absence. Miss Marsham, who had for some time felt the strain of school routine too much for her advanced years, was only able to sustain the fiction of her unimpaired powers by taking holidays, as a morphineuse takes her drug, in ever-increasing doses. She was confident in the discretion alike of Claire Hartle and Henrietta Vigors, and, indeed, but for their efficiency, the school would have suffered more quickly than it actually did. Nevertheless, the absence of supreme authority had, though but slightly, the usual disintegrating effect. There was always, naturally, an increase of friction between the two women, especially when the absence of the directress occurred at the beginning of a term. There would be the usual agitations, problems of housing and classification. There would arrive parents to be interviewed and impressed, new girls to be gracefully and graciously welcomed. Claire, to whom Henrietta, for all her hostility, invariably turned in emergencies, showing delicately, yet unmistakably, that she considered herself unwarrantably hampered in her own work, would submit to being on show with an air of bored acquiescence, tempered with modest surprise at the necessity for her presence. It was sufficiently irritating to Henrietta, under strict, if indirect, orders to leave the decorative side of the vice-regency to her rival. She was quite aware of Clare's greater effectiveness. She did not believe that it weighed with Miss Marsham against her own solid qualities. She affected to despise it, yet despising, she envied. She was unjust to Clare, however, in believing the latter's reluctance entirely assumed. Claire enjoyed ruffling the susceptibilities of Henrietta, 
but she was nonetheless genuinely annoyed at being even partially withdrawn from her classes, and was relieved when, at the end of a fortnight, Miss Marsham returned to her post. Claire had been forced to neglect her special work. Classes had been curtailed, and interrupted the many extra lessons postponed or turned over to Alwyn, whom more than any other mistress she had trained and could trust. It was Alwyn who, reporting to her at the end of the first fortnight, had made her more than ever eager to get rid of her deputyship. There were new girls in the fifth in whom Alwyn was interested. One at least, she prophesied, would be found to have stuff in her. It was a pity she was not in the scholarship class. She was too good for the lower fifth. Alwyn supposed it would be quite impossible to let her enter? At this time of day? Impossible. Do you realize that we've only another three months? I don't suppose she'd want to anyhow, said Alwyn. She's a quaint person. Talk about independence. She informed me today that she shouldn't stay longer than half term, unless she liked us. Oh, young America! Claire was alert. I didn't know you referred to Cynthia Griffiths. I interviewed the parents last week. Immensely rich. She was demure enough, but I gathered even then that she ruled the roost. Her mother was quite tearful, implored me to keep her happy for three months anyhow, while they both indulged in a rescue abroad. She seemed doubtful of our capacities, but she was not explicit. Cynthia is. I've heard the whole story while I tried to find out how much she knew. She's a new type. Her French and her German are perfect, and her clothes. Her bedroom is a pigsty, and she gets up when she chooses. I gather that she has reduced Miss Vigors to a nervous wreck already. Thank goodness I'm a visiting mistress. I wonder what the girls will make of her. Or she of them. That won't be the question, surmised Alwyn shrewdly. Claire, she has five schools behind her, American and foreign, and she's fifteen. We are an incident. I know. There were two Americans at my school. It remains to be seen, Claire's eyes narrowed. Well, what else? Alwyn fidgeted. I'm glad you're taking over everything again. I prefer my small kids. Why? Easier to understand and manage. Claire looked amused. Been getting into difficulties? Who's the problem? Agatha? That windbag? She only needs pricking to collapse, said Alwyn contemptuously. Then, with a frown, I wish poor little Mademoiselle Charette would realize it. Have you ever seen a lower fifth French lesson? But, of course, you haven't. It's a farce. Claire frowned. If she can't keep order... She can teach anyhow, said Alwyn quickly. I was at the other end of the room once, working. I listened a little. It's only Agatha. Mademoiselle can tackle the others. She's effective in a delicate way. But senseless, noisy rotting. It breaks her up. She loses her temper. Of course, it's funny to watch. But I hate that sort of thing. I did when I was a schoolgirl, even. Didn't you? I don't remember, but in the back of Clara's mind was a classroom and herself, contemptuously impertinent to a certain ineffective Miss Loveday. Alwyn continued, frowning. Anyhow, I wish you'd do something. Clara yawned. 
One mustn't interfere with other departments, unasked. Well, I ask you, Alwyn was in earnest. Why? I want you to. Why? Alwyn blushed. Why this championship? I didn't know you and Mademoiselle Charette were such intimates. It's just because we aren't. I like her, but... But what? Well, we had a row. You see, you won't tell, Claire. Claire smiled. She doesn't like you, blurted out Alwyn indignantly. And I just want to show her how altogether wrong. What a crime! How did you find it out? Claire was amused. She was telling me about Agatha. And I said, why on earth didn't she complain to you? And she said, nothing on earth would induce her to. I said, I was sure you would be only too glad for her to ask you. And she said, Alwyn paused dramatically. She said, she hadn't the faintest doubt you would, and that I was a charming child, but that she happened to understand you. Then we had a row, of course. Claire pealed with laughter. She's quite right, Alwyn. You are a charming child. So that is Mademoiselle Charette, is it? And I never guessed. She mused, a curious little smile on her lips. She's a dear, really, said Alwyn apologetically. Only she's what Mrs. Marker calls Audie. I can't think why her knife's into you. Suppose, Claire's eyes lit up. She showed the tip of her tongue. Sure sign of mischief afloat. Suppose I pull it out. What do you bet me, Alwyn? Alwyn laughed. I wish you would. I don't like it when people don't appreciate you. Anyhow, I wish you'd settle Agatha. You know, it's not doing the scholarship French any good. The class slacks. Mademoiselle is worried, I know. Claire was serious at once. That must stop. The standard's too high for trifling. And one or two of them are weak as it is. Especially Louise, isn't she? Don't you coach her for grammar? How is her extra work getting on, by the way? Like a house on fire, I suppose? Not altogether. Alwyn looked uneasy. What? Claire looked incredulous. She's the problem, said Alwyn. She had a piece of paper on the table before her and was drawing fantastic profiles as she spoke. Sure sign of perturbation with Alwyn, as Claire knew. Well, demanded Claire, after an interval. Alwyn paused, pencil hovering over an empty eye socket. She seemed nervous, opened her lips once or twice, and closed them again. What's wrong? Claire prompted her. Nothing's wrong, exactly. Alwyn flushed uncomfortably. After all, you've seen her in class. Her work is as good as usual. I think so. Her last essay was a little exotic, by the by, not quite as natural, but you corrected them. I was so busy. You don't think she's getting too keen, working too hard? Alwyn's tone was tentative. Do you think so? Claire was thoroughly interested. She was tickled at Alwyn's anxious tones. She always enjoyed her occasional bursts of responsibility, but she was nevertheless intrigued by Alwyn's hints. She had certainly not given her class its usual attention lately. To Louise, she had scarcely spoken unofficially since term began. No opportunities had occurred, and she had been too busy to make one. Louise had returned a bundle of books to her on the opening day of the term, 
and had been bidden to fetch herself as many more as she chose. But Claire had been out when Louise had called. Claire, to tell the truth, had not once given a thought to Louise since Christmas Day. She had taken a trip to London with Alwyn soon after. The two had enjoyed themselves. The holidays had flown, but she had been glad to find her class radiantly awaiting her. She had found it much as usual. Alwyn's perturbation was the more intriguing. "'Do you think so?' she repeated with a lift of her eyebrows that reduced Alwyn's status to that of a kindergarten pupil teacher. She enjoyed seeing her grow pink. "'Of course, it's no affair of mine,' said Alwyn aggrievedly. She went on with her drawing. Claire swung herself onto the low table and sat, skirts asway, gazing down at Alwyn's head, bent over his grotesques. There was a curl at the nape of the neck that fascinated her. It lay fine and shining like a baby's. She picked up a pencil and ran it through the tendril. Alwyn jumped. Claire, leave me alone. You only think I'm impertinent. Does she want a finger in the pie, then? said Claire softly. Poor old Alwyn. The pencil continued its investigations. Alwyn tried not to laugh. She could never resist Claire's soft voice, as Claire very well knew. I don't. I only thought... That Louise, your precious Louise... She's trying so awfully hard. Yes? She's overdoing it. The work's not so good. She's too keen, I think. Yes? I think... Yes, Alwyn? You won't be annoyed? That depends. Then I can't tell you. I think you can, said Claire levelly. Alwyn was silent. Claire took the paper from her and examined it. You've a fantastic imagination, Alwyn. When did you dream those faces? Well, and what do you think? Be quick. I think she's growing too fond of you, said Alwyn desperately. She faced Claire, red and apprehensive. She expected an outburst, but Claire never did what Alwyn expected her to do. Is that all? Who? said Claire lightly and began to laugh. She swung backwards, her fingertips crooked round the edge of the table, her neat shoes peeping and disappearing beneath her skirts as she rocked herself. She regarded Alwyn with sly amusement. So I've a bad influence, Alwyn? Is that the idea? Alwyn protested redly. Claire continued, unheeding. Well, it's a novel one, anyhow. Could you indicate exactly how my blighting effect is produced? Don't mind me, you know. Then, with a chuckle, Oh, you delicious child! Alwyn was silent. Tell me all about it, Alwyn, dear, cooed Claire. Alwyn shrugged her shoulders with a curiously helpless gesture. I can't, she said. I thought I could, but I can't. You don't help me. I was worried over Louise. I thought, I think she alters. I think she gets a strained look. I know she thinks about you all the time. I thought, but, of course, if you see nothing, it's my fancy. There's nothing definite, I know. If you don't know what I mean. I don't, said Claire shortly. Do you know yourself? No said Alwyn. She searched Claire's face wistfully. I just thought perhaps she was too fond of you. I can't put it differently. I'm a fool. I wish I hadn't said anything. 
So do I, said Claire gravely. I didn't mean to interfere. It was an impertinence, Claire, said Alwyn, her cheeks flaming. Claire hesitated. She was annoyed at Alwyn's unnecessary display of insight, yet tickled by her penetration, not displeased by the jealousy which, as it seemed to her, must be at the root of the protest. Alwyn had evidently not forgotten her chilly Christmas afternoon. Louise, as obviously, had talked. There must have been some small degree of friction for Alwyn to complain of Louise. Curiously, it never occurred to Claire that Alwyn's remarks hid no motive, that Alwyn was genuinely anxious and meant exactly what she had said, or tried to say. Possibly in Alwyn's simplicity lay her real attraction for Claire. It made her as much of a sphinx to Claire as Claire was to her. As she stood before her, apprehensive of her displeasure, obviously afraid that she had exceeded those bounds to their intercourse that she, more than Claire, had laid down, yet withal a curiously dogged look upon her face, Claire was puzzled as to her own wisest attitude. She was inclined to batter her into a retraction. It would have relieved her own feelings. Claire could not endure criticism, but she was not yet so sure of Alwyn as to allow herself the relief of invective. She thought that she might easily reserve her annoyance for Louise. It was Louise, after all, who had exposed her to criticism, and if Alwyn chose to be jealous, it was at least a flattering display. She supposed she must placate Alwyn. After all, fifty Louises and her own dignity could not weigh against the possession of Alwyn. She spoke slowly, choosing her words. As if I could think you impertinent. But, my dear, I'm older than you. Can't you trust me to understand my girls? After all, I devote my life to them, Alwyn. Claire's quiet dignity was in itself a reproof. I know, Alwyn lifted distressed eyes. I didn't mean, I didn't imply, of course you know best. I only thought that I took more notice of Louise than was wise? No, no, protested Alwyn unhappily. Claire continued. If you think I'm to blame for encouraging a lonely child, she has no mother, Alwyn. Lending her a few books, asking her to tea with me, because I felt rather sorry for her. I didn't mean that, Alwyn twisted her fingers helplessly. Then what did you mean? Claire asked her. She had slipped on to the floor and was facing Owen, very tall and grave and quiet. Won't you tell me just exactly what you did mean? She allowed a glimmer of displeasure to appear in her eyes. And Owen, tongue-tied and cornered, had nothing whatever to say. She had been filled with vague uneasiness and had come to Claire to have it dispelled. The uneasiness was still there, formless yet insistent but the only effect of her clumsy phrases was to hurt Claire's feelings. After all, was she not worrying herself unduly? Was she to know better than Claire? She had felt for some moments that she had made a fool of herself. There remained to capitulate. Her anxiety over Louise melted before the pain in Claire's eyes, the reproof of her manner. Would you like me to speak to Louise before you? went on Claire patiently. Perhaps she could explain what it is that worries you. No, no, for goodness sake, Claire, cried Alwyn, appalled, then surrendering. Claire, I didn't mean anything. I do see. I've been fussing, impertinent, whatever you like. 
I didn't mean any harm. Oh, let's stop talking about it, please. I'd rather you convinced yourself first, said Claire frigidly. I don't want the subject reopened once a week. Then relenting. Poor old Alwyn, the trials of a deputy. Has she worried herself to death? But I'm back now. I think I can manage my class, Alwyn, as long as you stand by to give me a word of advice now and then. Alwyn squirmed. Claire laughed tenderly. My dear, give Louise a little less attention. It won't hurt either of you. Are you going to let me feel neglected? Then, with a change of tone. Now we've had enough of this nonsense. She curled herself in her big chair. Alwyn, there's a box of fullers in the cupboard and an English review. Don't you want to hear the new Maysfield before you go home? And Alwyn's eyes grew big, and she forgot all about Louise, as Claire's loveliest voice read out the rhyme of the river. Yet Claire had a last word as she sent her home to Elspeth. Sorry, said Claire whimsically, as Alwyn bade her goodbye. I always was a fool, said Alwyn, and hugged her defiantly. But Claire, for once, made no protest. She patted her ruffled hair as she listened to the noises of the departure. Too fond of me, she said softly. Too fond of me, Alwyn? What about you? But if Alwyn heard, she made no answer. End of chapter 13 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona